welcome to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. In this episode, I talk with Alessandra Lozano, known to colleagues and friends as Ali, who is the Director of Communications and Advocacy of the Texas Civil Rights Project, TCRP, based in Houston, Texas. Allie shares how her own coming out experience as a lesbian in 2009 propelled her into grassroots organizing work for LGBTQ liberation. She landed in the electoral space in 2012, working to elect openly LGBTQ candidates in states like Wisconsin and Arizona. It was through these campaign experiences between 2012 and 2014 that Ali observed different voting rules and transitioned into expanding the electorate through voter registration work with an organization in Texas, which she has called home since 2013. Ali talks about the work being done by TCRP, specifically on voting rights, though they also have programs that address criminal injustice and immigrants' rights. Spoiler, all three are connected. She explains how people can get involved with policy advocacy and provide specific strategies and tactics such as paying attention to what is happening at the local level and showing up to county hearings and city council meetings to testify, and how organizations such as TCRP support these efforts. Allie outlines guidance when giving public testimony, discusses coalitions as a tool to build political power, and talks about how TCRP engages in coalition building by detailing their work with the diverse Texas for All Coalition which has unified around combating the increased attempts at voter suppression by the Texas legislature. The organizations of this historic, first-of-its-kind coalition work in different issue areas from reproductive rights to labor to LGBTQ equality, but all agree, policy that aligns with our values cannot move forward unless we protect the right to vote. She talks about TCRP's strategy to work at the local level to pass pro-voter reforms as well as the importance of redistricting, and what we can all do to have fair and true representation of our communities. Allie really gives us a master class in policy advocacy and organizing. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Before we get into the interview, I want to let you all know about our episode's sponsor, the University of Tennessee Knoxville College of Social Work. First off, I want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. UTK has a phenomenal social work program, with the opportunity to do your bachelor's, master's, and doctorate of social work online. Of course, they also have excellent classes in person in both Knoxville and Nashville. UTK is committed to preparing social workers who will support human potential and dignity and challenge racism and all forms of oppression. Scholarships are available. Go to www.csw.utk.edu to learn more. And now the interview. Hey, Ali, thanks so much for coming on, doing the work. I'm so excited to have you on here. I've been following your work for a while. So let's just to kick stuff off, you know, if you could just share a little about what you're currently doing. Yeah, so I'm Ali Lozano. I'm the Director of Communications and Advocacy at the Texas Civil Rights Project. I'm based here in Houston. We have five different offices all across the state. And we work in voting rights, um, criminal justice reform, which we refer to as criminal injustice, and then also racial and economic justice, which is our team that focuses on things like fighting the border wall, 
uh, fighting the family separation crisis and overall immigrant uh, immigrant rights and immigrant justice in Texas. All of that sounds amazing, and it also sounds like you've got a lot going on. No shortage of things to do here. Right, right. <laughs> so I'm hoping we can get into those different aspects of what you do and also, you know, have a conversation where people listening can, you know, even pick up like some some skills to maybe enhance what they're already doing or it gives them some ideas on how to get started in this work. So I think, you know, one thing just to get to talk about, you know, before we get into the specifics is how did you get into, you know, into doing this type of work? Yeah, so I love this question because I entered this work, um, I think, in a way that a lot of people entered this work, which was that the personal became political for me. So I had a whole plan after high school to go to college on the East Coast somewhere that had a really strong international affairs program. And I wanted to become a foreign service officer. That was the plan. Uh, and I, I did end up going to George Washington University in D.C., which it does indeed have a very strong international relations program. Um, and I entered my freshman year in 2008, and it took less than a year of me being away at college to come to accept the fact that I was a lesbian. And at that time, you know, if you're thinking 2008, 2009, the State Department, which, you know, of course, employs all of these foreign service officers, looked very different um, than it does now. This was sort of pre-Hillary Clinton entering the State Department. And as part of, you know, my undergraduate program and my studies doing international affairs, I, I started to hear a lot of stories that were not good um, about some of the internal, you know, policies, whether formal or informal, that were really negatively impacting openly LGBTQ foreign service officers. Um, primarily, you know, hearing that foreign service officers who were openly gay, who were then deployed um, and, and chose to go somewhere, you know, be deployed somewhere with their spouses, that their spouses were not getting the same sort of benefits um, as their heterosexual counterparts. And so I started to just sort of hear, you know, some stories through my networking, trying to make this into a career for myself. And not only did I get really scared about whether or not I actually was going to have a place in this field, but I got really angry. And mind you, I mean, 2009, we at that point, don't ask, don't tell us still law. We have no federal employment protections for LGBTQ people. Marriage equality was not ruled on by the Supreme Court yet. Marriage equality was only a thing in a handful of states. So really all of these different uh, all of these different laws and policies that were keeping me a second class citizen really sort of hit me in the face um, at the same time with my coming out. And so that really propelled me into um, the organizing space in both D.C. and New York City. And I got involved with a nonviolent civil disobedience direct action group at the time called Get Equal in D.C., which then turned into a full blown nonprofit long after I, I had left it. Um, but that was really how I got propelled into the work. And from there, it was sort of a both a linear and nonlinear journey of, of ending up in the voting rights space, doing actual voting rights policy work in the state of Texas. Um, so I, I ended up as the political manager at the LGBTQ Victory Fund after my undergraduate degree because I knew 
that I wanted to be in the domestic political space at that point. And what I figured was that was a great space for me because I knew that in order to get the policies changed that I wanted changed, I needed folks who were like me. So needed to change that representation at every level of government. Um, But then, you know, while I was working at the Victory Fund, I was sent out to help out the field teams for about five different campaigns um, at all different levels all over the country. And I started noticing while working these campaigns, the very different voting rules and voting laws that existed in every state. And that then propelled me into getting more interested in expanding the electorate. So I went from wanting policies changed to help my community, thinking that I needed to change the people in power. But then while doing the work to change the people in power, I figured out that I needed to expand the electorate. And then that really got me into the voting rights space. So I moved to Texas in 2013 and did a lot of hardcore organizing work uh, with the Texas Freedom Network around voter registration, but also LGBTQ equality issues and reproductive justice. And then after um, organizing with them for a few years, I decided to go back to graduate school where I got my MSW and then landed here at TCRP postgraduate school. So that is that is like my um, 12 year lifespan in, in three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. And, you know, like like you said, like so many people, people start experiencing or understanding the oppression that they're facing, right? And then that next step is like, what do we do about it? I kind of want to back up to that, you know, to and then and then get closer, get you know, get into what you're doing now. But you know, back when you're in in DC and you're real, you're coming against these barriers, you know, these hetero patriarchal, you know, homophobic, like oppression you know that is like blocking your like what you was your dream right how did that process take place where you went from feeling like these things are blocking me and i can't do this to like this is what i'm going to do about it you know what was that process like uh, yeah it, i actually remember a specific activist meeting that i was at where I learned way more about tax law than I ever would have wanted to in my life, right? At that point, because again, marriage equality wasn't legal nationwide. And I and and actually this was an entire sort of dialogue within the marriage equality movement internally about, you know, that the the narrative shift of going from talking about, well, we need marriage because everyone should be able to file taxes jointly to no, we need to talk about the actual love that exists between these two people and that they are consenting adults and have the right to marry just like everybody else. But I, you know, the, just the way I work, I'm, I'm definitely much more of a (laughs) policy will get my attention is, is basically what I'm trying to say. And, um, you know, for me, it was both the emotional aspect of it, right? Like this realization that, if I found somebody that I loved a ton and who I wanted to marry, I was not going to get to do that. And the other half of my brain was like, well, in terms of administration, this is also not fair Like when it comes to things like taxes and, and stuff like that. But, but, and, and in terms of the process of like what I was going to do about it, you know, I mean, I came out at 19 I was still in college. I I definitely did not have the same sort of resources and platform now to do 
a ton about it other than to organize my peers and to organize out in the community and to get arrested and to get detained by police doing protests and interrupting congressional hearings, which I also did. Um, And so, yeah, I don't know. For, For me, it was... I mean, everything really did hit me at once, both the uh, the emotional aspect of it and just being really sad about it. Um, but then also the the real tangible, concrete impact that all of these policies were going to have on just like the day to day of my life, you know, whether it was being able to feel secure in my housing without fear of getting evicted for for being gay Um so yeah, all of that really, really hit me at once. Yeah. And I think, you know, as, I mean, we're both social workers, right? So I think to talk about that for a second in terms of like, you know, in social work, we talk about like person in environment, right? In these systems, but like your story is one more example of like how these systems just like destroy people's lives and fringe on people's lives. And then you got really into like the policy aspect of it, like the target, right? The target to change is the, is the policy. And then what are the strategies to do that? Yeah. And, you know, sometimes I think that's really missing, <laughs> like, do, like that work. And so that's a big part of why I wanted to have you on here to talk about that. So let's jump ahead a little bit to the work you're doing now. You know, how would someone get into the type of organizing that you're currently doing like someone who like cares about these issues right like stuff's been blown up and 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 like they're everyone's on social media and everyone's learning if they hadn't known already about all these different social issues and like there's a lot of people who want to do something about it and other than of course people can join a protest in the streets they know that And they can like, you know, vote. But what are like other things? Like, how do people get involved with the organizing? Yeah, great question. So one of the biggest things that people can do that, number one, I think that a lot of folks don't know they can do this, that they can totally, they have the absolute power and autonomy to do this and or are a little bit intimidated by the idea of doing it. So much happens at the local level and so much policy is passed at the local level and the state level. Like, you know, there's so much to be done where people live. (laughs) And so one of the biggest things that I think people can do is pay attention to what's going on at the county government level and actually show up to things like commissioner's court hearings and testify um, and show up to city council meetings and testify Testimony is one of the most powerful tools that we have in our toolbox, in my opinion. And, you know, I'm definitely speaking from a Texas lens, right, from a Texas perspective, um, because I've been here for so many years and I've been organizing here now, you know, just under a decade. And one of one of the things that we use as a mobilization tactic here in Texas at the state level is testimony is getting people to actually show up at the state capitol and testify against really bad bills um, or in favor of really good bills, things that, you know, folks want to actually see implemented in their communities. But we also have an entire um, campaign at TCRP where I work completely dedicated to county level government and to not only getting information out to people about things happening at the county level, but then also saying, look, 
These are these are the hearings that you can show up at and get involved in this work. These are the you know, even if they're not like formal legislative hearings or formal county county hearings, if they're just meetings that are open to the community, these are things that you can actively show up at and speak at that will insert you into the work, directly insert you into the work. And you, and, and something that, you know, we've been trying to do in Texas um, more and more is testimony trainings, like really equipping people with the skills that they need to feel confident in order to proactively take hold of their own power and show up at a county commissioner court meeting or a city council meeting and and testify in front of the people who work for them, right? Um, so I, I think that I think that in person testimony is an incredibly powerful tool that that more folks I think absolutely could could take advantage of, and particularly that social workers could take advantage of. Whether you are clinical or macro, I actually think that a stronger social worker voice at all of these sort of governmental meetings and hearings um, is something that is actually very much missing from the policy conversation. So you were talking about like these trainings you're starting to do. And that was one of the questions I had as you're talking about testifying is like, so what, what would someone want to cover, you know, when they, when they testify at one of these hearings? So, of course, it would depend on what topic they were testifying on, but really the kind of template for testimony is is pretty uniform. So, number one, you want to make very clear who you are and, and sort of what, what your positionality is within the community. You know, are you a constituent of X district or Y district? Uh, why, is, why is that important? Um, and then very clearly stating what your position is on whatever topic that you're testifying on. So you will see sometimes and and very frequently actually like public testimony occur. And then the state rep or the county commissioner is like after the, the person is done testifying, will say, wait, so what's your position? So you want to make very clear whether you are for or against something and then make your case, you know, se- semi briefly, because usually testimony does not exceed two to five minutes. Um, and then make a clear ask of of these elected officials or of these policymakers um, and then restate your position extremely clearly at the end. So the content around the argument that you're making can can absolutely vary depending on what exactly it is that you're testifying on. But the overall sort of format of effective testimony is pretty uniform. And, and I mean, there's a bunch of national groups for sure, but definitely many statewide and local groups who have a bunch of effective testimony trainings as well. And it's something that TCRP has gotten into a lot more in recent years, specifically because we consider it such a powerful tool. I agree. And I think that's great that you're doing those trainings and that, you know, we're having this conversation so people can plug in because, you know, people are busy and they're, they've got their jobs and families or school, whatever's going on. And so to have an organization like yours where people can plug in and get that training so they can really maximize the time they are able to give is so critical. Yeah. And actually that brings up a sort of equity issue because, you know, we try to do, well, not only us, but a lot of our coalition partners as well. We try to do multiple trainings, right? At different times of day, because people have different working schedules and people have childcare needs and people have school uh, and people have family obligations, all of these things. 
And I will say, you know, that a lot of times, particularly at the state level, again, I'm speaking from a Texas perspective, a lot of these committee hearings, you know, that we try to push people to testify at are at very inconvenient times of day. Um, and that's done on purpose, you know, that's specifically done on purpose to, to try and keep people away. And, and you know, one, one little silver lining of the horrendousness that has been the COVID-19 pandemic is that here in Harris County, where I'm located, where Houston is, the county commissioner's court, because of COVID, started allowing people to just call in to testify. So you did not have to actually go in person, um, you know, and and make the trek down to the, the commissioner's court building and find parking and pay for parking. But you were able to just call in on the telephone. It was this like completely revelatory thing where we were, you know, thinking, oh, my gosh, why haven't we been doing this all along? This is making this entire process so much more accessible to people for for working people, for parents, for students to actually have a say in this in this policy process. And so, um, you know, and that hasn't really that hasn't been 100 percent the case at the state level like they they did in, in certain committees say, OK, we're not going to allow virtual testimony um, which is absolutely, you know, a barrier to accessibility that is done on purpose. Um, so, you know, I say that that testimony is one of the most powerful tools that we sort of have in the in the organizing toolbox in terms of getting people, you know, people entered into this sort of space. But there still absolutely are equity issues around, you know, meeting times and locations, um, et cetera, and things like that. Yeah. I want to talk about voting rights because it is always been important and it's increasingly, I don't know if I should say increasingly, but we've seen the nationwide mobilization by the right to completely attack voting rights because they know they can't win, right? If black and brown and working class folks are able to vote, right? Period. So how are you addressing that issue, you know, like kind of like an overview, but also like some specific strategies? Oh, man. So I think it's fair to say increasingly, um, I would say that we are in the middle of the biggest democracy crisis that we have seen in a very, very, very long time, arguably since the Jim Crow era, um, 100%. Everything that we have seen happening nationally, you know, particularly in states like Georgia, like Texas, like Arizona, um, those three in particular, uh, is completely a coordinated campaign from from the other side, from those that would seek to undermine the very fabric of our democracy to insulate their own power and shield themselves from public accountability, for sure. Like we are in an existential crisis when it comes to democracy. And in Texas... In particular, (laughs) there are very different things happening at the state level versus the local level. So, you know, I mean, if anyone is listening to this podcast, you probably have seen on the news by now, you know, at least in in some headline form or in a in a Twitter header or something that Texas during our regular legislative session, which ended uh, last month, that lawmakers attempted to pass a massive voter suppression omnibus bill, which died in the regular session because Texas House Democrats decided to break quorum and walk off of the House floor, thereby killing the bill. 
Um, today was actually the first day of the special legislative session, which was called by the governor specifically to pass a voter suppression omnibus bill. He also put a bunch of other bad stuff on on the agenda, but like the inspiration, really, the heart of this special legislative session is to pass voter suppression legislation. And at the state level, you know, we're in a Republican trifecta state. And I'm saying all of this from my nonpartisan hat, by the way, (laughs) to be clear. But these are just the facts, right? Like we are in a Republican trifecta state. um, And that political party happens to be on the complete opposite side uh, from us on the voting rights issue. Therefore, legislatively, we have, you know, the the folks who are sort of representing our side of the policy debate on voting rights um, have very few options, options in terms of leveraging power within the legislature to an extent that the bill would die unless they took particularly extraordinary measures like breaking quorum and walking off the House floor and leaving the state, which is what Dems actually did in 2003 when Rick Perry was governor. And so because of that, it's really fallen very much on organizations like mine, uh, Texas Civil Rights Project. Also, some of our closest partners, you know, ACLU of Texas, Move Texas, Texas Freedom Network, Common Cause Texas, and so many others to come up with effective strategies that are emphasizing public outcry as much as possible. And basically, you know, since we we have very little power within the legislature here in Texas, basically making the public outcry so loud that it is as painful as 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 politically painful as possible for these elected officials to pass voter suppression legislation. So that comes with, you know, a lot of media, a lot of press, but that also comes with mass mobilization of regular people to the Texas state capitol. So as of right now, you know, I mean, today was the first day of the special session. On Monday, we're planning a gigantic advocacy day and all of our groups are working together to pull funds and um, logistic support together so that we can bus people from all over the all over the state to the Capitol on Monday for a massive, you know, public um, advocacy day and lobby day. And then, you know, the other strategy has really been an inside strategy of of trying to get as many talking points from real people who would be affected by this legislation, like Texans with disabilities, Texans who um, who for English is not their primary language or their first language for students, even for for LGBTQ Texans, like because voter ID actually really impacts the the trans community. Um trying to get as many stories and, and again, personal testimonies of people who would very much be directly impacted by this voter suppression legislation, not only getting them to the Capitol, but getting them to testify as well. Those have been sort of the strategies at the, at the state level. Um, but what, another campaign that we have actually had going for the last two years, actually a little bit over two years now, is our Democracy from the Ground Up campaign. And that campaign actually bypasses the state altogether. And we work directly with county clerks, election administrators, and county commissioners courts to try and get pro-voter reforms passed at the local level. Because when you're in, you're in a state like Texas or Georgia or Arizona, where the state leadership is incredibly hostile to expanding voting access, right? 
Um, one way to get pro-voter reforms passed is at the local level. Um, now, of course, you have to you know, deal with the risk of state leadership then passing a bunch of preemption laws. But in our case, the state legislature only meets every two years. <laughs> so we have like we have a little bit more time for actual county commissioners courts to pass pro-voter reforms. And so, you know, we've been working at the local level around expanding voting access for for many, many years. And in fact, um, you know, if anyone has been paying attention to Texas since the 2020 election, you you will know that the the biggest inspiration for all of the ideas that Republican lawmakers got for some of the worst provisions included in the voter suppression omnibus bill during the regular session were all specifically aimed at brand new pro-voter methods that Harris County implemented during the 2020 election. So literally a bunch of these local reforms were implemented in Harris County that made voter turnout soar and that were able to, um, you know, actually be accessible and convenient, particularly for black folks, for brown folks, for AAPI people and working people. Um, and literally the state lawmakers saw those reforms and that they worked and that people liked them. Um, and they took those reforms and turned them into uh, provisions that would otherwise ban them at the state level. So, I mean, this fundamentally comes down to an issue of power, right? Of who has political power and who doesn't. And, you know, mobilization can be a way to build power, right? Like, the, like getting more people who can vote, counteracting these voter suppression laws, if they actually, um, if these lawmakers actually care though, right? If they actually care that it's almost like even with the national embarrassment, what or we what we might think would be like embarrassing to them and this the outcry, it's almost like what it seems like now is, and maybe it's been like this for a long time, you tell me, is that the GOP and the right are like thriving almost off of the outcry where it's like, oh yeah, look at, you know, cause they want to like own the libs or whatever. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. These people came and they did all this, but like, look what we did. Like we stuck to our guns or whatever. How, you know, how do you, de- like, how do you deal with that? Yeah. So I actually, how we deal with it is that we put a lot of effort, time, energy, uh, blood, sweat, and tears into the redistricting fight. Because the when we're talking about power, um, we're also talking about accountability, right? And so really the voting rights fight really does start with redistricting, which is when you know all of our state district and congressional maps are redrawn to reflect new census data. So redistricting is done in conjunction with the census only once every 10 years. Uh, Congressional District 2 here in Texas, I actually believe is the most gerrymandered state or the most gerrymandered district in the country. Actually, I'm I'm pretty sure that we hold that title here in Texas. Um, And so, you know, the reason that that these, you know, that these particular elected officials, and this would be the same thing for the Democrats, right? The reason they're able to be like, oh, 
look at these one million people at the Capitol, I don't care. It's because they know that they are shielded from accountability because of how the maps are drawn, because the maps have been drawn intentionally to carve out people who would likely vote against them because that elected official does not represent their interests and does not actually advocate for the things that they need. So when we're talking about the voting rights fight, I mean, you know, we can talk about all of these provisions all day, and I certainly can, but I really do think it does start with the redistricting fight because I think you're absolutely right. It is about power. And and, and when I think of power, I think of accountability. And when I think of accountability, I think redistricting because the way that these lines are drawn Um, I mean, this is a national problem, really shields these people from being accountable to the people that they should be accountable to. So I actually, you know, when I talk to social workers, whether it's in a university setting or at conferences or on a podcast, you know, whatever, I always ask social workers, I like beg them, please pay attention to the redistricting process, because number one, redistricting, right, does not only impact electoral wins and losses. It doesn't only impact like who's actually in power and who is not actually in power. It also impacts like actual financial resources that certain services and um, uh, agencies get, which which drastically impact a lot of our client populations and really, you know, put a lot of our most vulnerable neighbors at risk if that you know, redistricting process is misallocated um, because it definitely dictates a lot of monetary funding in certain programs and and areas of local jurisdiction. So it all trickles down like a bunch of stuff. Everything trickles down really from redistricting. It's so incredibly important. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I really think the the power game doesn't only start with being able to register to vote. It really does start with the redistricting process which we only get to do once once every decade. That was like a masterclass right there. That's how I feel. Like I feel like I just learned so much and I hope people listening are feeling that way and you know getting some ideas of how to get involved or like how to build on the ways they're already involved. Continuing kind of on like this idea of building power, right? So you've got um the work you're doing, like mobilizing individuals, right? Because that's a big part of it. And then there's also, you already said, there's like this larger coalition that you're part of. So I kind of want to break both of those apart too, so we can talk about each one. Maybe we can talk with the in- mobilizing individuals first, which I assume involves a lot of like one-to-one conversations. Can you kind of talk about that? Like how, I mean, I'm sh- you've probably done that, right? And then maybe now you're in a role where you're helping others who do that? Yeah, that's right. It's actually funny because, um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I was organizing with the Texas Freedom Network for several years um, here, here in Houston. Uh, but I was also doing some, actually, I was also doing some organizing work for them up in North Texas in Denton and in Dallas also. And, and that work was absolutely, I mean, I was working primarily with college students and that was very, very much one-on-ones, 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 just consistent one-on-ones, hundreds and hundreds of one-on-ones, you know, to try and really get these students fired up about, you know, not only voting, but also just other policy areas affecting their lives. The, the most effective 
thing I found when I was working with college students, because I would always get I would always get this from mostly older folks. Oh, college students are apathetic. They don't care about politics. They don't care about voting. How do you get through to them? How do you even do that? And what I would do is that in my one on ones or in very intimate sort of, uh, you know, student meeting settings, I would ask each of them, what is the thing that like keeps you up at night? And in terms of of life worries, if you're thinking 5, 10, 15 years down the line, what is the thing that keeps you up at night? And I would hear medical debt, student loan debt, parents and retirement, things like that. And I would say, okay, all of those things literally depend on the people in power. And you literally have the you have the power to dictate who the people in power are that is going to determine all of those things that you're worried about. So when I kind of framed it from a policy perspective, right, not just you should vote because we want this person to be in Congre- Congressional District 7, like that's not that's not getting to, to the heart of what they care about. And so, yeah, that doing that kind of organizing work, it was very much one on one, like very emergent strategy, right? Like I just read Emergent Strategies by Adrienne Marie Brown, which I recommend to everybody. It's an incredible book on organizing. And it really was that, that like one-on-one, you know, sometimes, most oftentimes not a flashy interaction, but, but causing just that little ripple of getting a young person to realize their own power just in a one-on-one meeting. And eventually, if you build that out enough in different regions of the state, now, you know, Texas Freedom Network is able to mobilize hundreds of students at a time whenever we do, you know, big lobby and advocacy days like we're doing on Monday. And now I'm in a little bit of a different chair working at the Texas Civil Rights Project with the Texas Freedom Network as one of our closest partners, where TCRP is really providing the policy analysis of, you know, all of these bills at the legislature, but also of actual election code and election law, right? Because that stuff is like, not in English, <laughs> like you know, like that you crack open, open the election code and it's just like, oh, my God, what is this? And you do need the you know, you do need some some lawyerly help sometimes to to really break it down in real people language. So I like to think of TCRP as sort of like the policy hub for the broader movement and also as sort of the bridge connector of folks working both on the ground as well as grass tops. And, you know, Coming into the work where I came from, and by that I mean like I started as the person getting arrested and going to jail at a protest, and now I'm working at an organization with a bunch of lawyers, and I describe my my org as the policy hub. Like it's very different, and I feel like I've done sort of like all of those levels, right? Like I went to jail, and then I was doing hardcore organizing, but not going to jail, and then I went into electoral work, and now I'm at this like very nerdy, cool (laughs) policy organization. And I think what I'm getting at here is that we need all of those things. Mm -hmm. Like the, the movements for social justice need all of those things. So I hate when people, you know, really like drag on folks who get arrested at protests saying that's not effective. Why are they doing that? We need all the tactics at this point, because there are so many things that are under attack, like the entire state of our democracy. Um, and, you know, so many other things like 
diversified tactics are needed, of course, in a targeted and strategic way. But like we need everybody that we can get and, you know, and tactics on sort of the external facing front, like protesting and then sort of the sort of what I would kind of consider like a middle ground of, you know, hardcore organizing one on one interactions, very emergent strategy focused. And then, you know, kind of the more broader, higher level policy analysis space, like all of those things are needed if we're going to win. Yeah, total, a hundred percent. So you were talking, I mean, I want to come back to this part because like you're talking to college students, but let's shift into the conversations of like when you're in some neighborhoods, you know, or the folks at TCRP are going out or these other organizations you're working with and they're talking with folks like, are they using that same type of conversation? I mean, that's a pretty brilliant question (laughs) to ask is like, what keeps you up at night and then link it back to policy, right? And power. Is that kind of the approach or is there a different approach? So I don't, I mean, I definitely don't want to speak for the approach and strategy that other orgs are taking. Right. But I think that, I think that framework is fair. The one I just talked about, right. That, that folks are taking, I mean, I think that the overall movement, particularly in Texas has gotten better at actually putting a lot of our materials and our work into languages other than English and Spanish, which I actually think have made a big difference. In Harris County, it's made a big difference, certainly. Like even all of our voting materials from the Harris County Elections Administrator's Office is in, I mean, a lot of different languages. I think that's been an added approach. And I mean, you know, I haven't worked at TFN in a minute, but <laughs> but, you know, there's also a coalition here called Houston in Action, which is essentially a collective of a bunch of different organizations working at the local level here in Harris County, primarily with communities of color and immigrant communities. And it is very much, you know, that that one on one time and really asking, making making the intentional ask, right? Like, hey, what do, what do you care about? Because chances are what you care about is something that we're working on. And do you want to get involved? Right. But but I have always kind of maintained that approach, um, you know, when I have sort of met resistance around voting as a concept or <laughs> as an as an actual action. You know, I'm, it, I'm like, hey, what keeps you up at night? Because it's connected to voting, probably. <laughs> Abs- yeah. I mean, there's so many issues you you said, like just from those conversations with the students, you know, and then you think about folks who are going to talk about like, you know, their kids and what the future holds. And um, I want to get into the coalition building part too. So, you you know, we talk about kind of working with people one-on-one. You're part of this Texas for All coalition, right? Is that what it's called? Yes. Texas for All? That's and right. So can, can you kind of talk about like, how do you build a coalition? Like, what's that look like? And how does that then build power? Wow, what a question. Yes. So I'll, I'll preface with like, I mean, that's like one of the coalitions that we're in. Right? We're in, I'm in so many coalitions. I'm in way too many Slack workspaces. Let me tell everybody, like way too many. So many coalitions. Everyone has five Slacks for every coalition. Um, the Texas for All Coalition, though, is indeed pretty special And that's because, you know, normally when you think coalitions, you kind of think of them 
in uh, in subject areas, right? You think you think a voting rights coalition, you think a criminal justice coalition, you think uh, environmental justice coalition, and the Texas for All coalition is a compilation of basically every progressive organization in the state of Texas, at least the the major ones, working on almost every policy issue under the sun in the state, right? So we have a lot of abortion rights groups, reproductive rights and justice groups, criminal justice, environmental justice, housing, labor, voting rights, immigrants' rights. And I'm sure there's even more that I'm missing, but it's basically 35 organizations working across all of those different policy areas. And we were all working in our own spaces, right? Doing our own thing. As, as we always do during the regular legislative session. And then something really shifted in that I think everybody sort of had like a telepathy moment where we realized that the state leadership was going to be particularly horrible during this legislative session. So we had all started talking to each other, you know, a little bit before the regular session had started And then the Texas freeze happened in February. Um, And if folks don't remember, what we call the Texas freeze is basically uh, literally when Texas froze over (laughs) Um, and we got snow in Texas, which is not usual in many parts of this state. Um, But with that, you know, I mean, that would have been fine. People live in places with snow and ice and 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 they're fine. But the thing about Texas is that, number one, we have uh, we do not have insulated homes. So our homes are not built to withstand that kind of climate like that is just not the climate that we are used to here. And number two, we are not on the national energy grid. So we have, because you know Texas, Texas loves to be individual or whatever. And (laughs) we have this separate electric grid that is run by the state and that was completely neglected by the state for years and years and years. So then when this freeze happened, the energy grid just collapsed basically. And we were told that we would get rolling blackouts for like, you know, 15 minutes, maybe a few hours, but then everything would be fine. But a lot of people ended up losing power for like days and days and days in the middle of a freeze with no insulated homes. So no heat and no insulated homes. So deadly. It's deadly. People died from hypothermia in their homes and the state government did nothing like literally how 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 people who are normally inclined to maybe vote for the Republican Party. Like I was hearing a lot of people say my state leaders literally left me to freeze in my own home. And so when the Texas freeze happened, it was like all of these different groups in the Texas for All coalition realized that we had a common narrative and a, and a common sort of Texas value set that we could work off of for unified messaging and and to really create a formal unified structure, coalition structure to push back against the state leadership priorities at the legislature. And really that that value that we we really work off of is that, you know, we've been through so much environmental trauma here in Texas. And what Texans believe at the end of the day, I mean, truly, is that we help each other. 
So, you know, during Hurricane Harvey, people were not asking how you voted in the last election. People were like kayaking you to safety. Right. During the Texas freeze, it was the same thing. And in both instances, right, because after Hurricane Harvey, the governor did not call a special legislative session to help Texans after Hurricane Harvey. And now he has called a special session to literally go after trans children being able to play soccer at school and making sure that people who do not have capital and money stay in jail because they're trying to abolish personal personal bonds. Um, like restricting abortion for the one millionth time, like they've already banned abortion at six weeks twice during the regular session. I don't know what else they have left to do. And then also diluting the right to vote. And so the Texas for All Coalition realized this, like we all realized after that freeze, like, oh my God, no matter what issue area we're working on, the common thread here is that the governor and state leadership could be working on all of these different things and instead they're going for our issue areas that are, you know, I mean, what I guess would be considered like in some cases, if you're talking about abortion, controversial social issues when we can't even keep the electricity on. Like, Mm -hmm. so that was kind of the unified message that we were all able to really rally around. Like, please don't worry about trans children playing baseball or softball or soccer. Can you please make sure I have electricity, which is like the entire (laughs) like basic function of government. Um, And so that's that's what happened. (laughs) So then this coalition came together, um, you know, and now we we are collaborating all together on this massive advocacy lobby day on Monday. But the other thing I want to just mention about this coalition is that, you know, we had a million meetings really trying to kind of figure out how, you know, how you navigate everybody's different legislative priorities, because obviously, like, you know, TCRP's priorities are very different than an environmental justice group, um, right, or than a reproductive rights group. And what we also all discovered was that because of the complete onslaught of legislation attacking the right to vote in Texas, everybody also realized and agreed that everybody's individual issue areas were literally going to depend on defending the right to vote in Texas. Mm -hmm. So that has now become the sort of core issue that we are organizing around for all of our issue areas. I mean, that's included TCRP's own criminal justice work. Um, You know, so it's an incredible coalition, 35 organizations working all over the state on, on a ton of different policy areas unified around the common Texas value of we help our neighbors, um, that defending the right to vote is necessary for all of our survival, <laughs> and that state leadership should be keeping electricity on instead of wasting taxpayer money on all of this nonsense. Right, and like <laughs> blaming the Green New Deal that doesn't even exist. Yeah. Oh, I loved how they blamed the entire electric grid collapse on renewables. I was like, oh, honey, that's not what happened. <laughs> I Yeah. Like they like blamed it on AOC and she has like nothing to do with Texas. I mean, it was like. Her power is extends all the way to Texas, you know. It was, that was, that was wild. Um, but it also shows how horrific it is because that's what they're focusing on while their own constituents are dying, like literally yeah. dying, you know. And I. And I will also say, and this goes back kind of to the power building and coalition building question that you have. I hope I answered your question. But, you know, the reason 
that I think this coalition from all these different, vastly different areas of work were able to come together so quickly is because all of us organizers and advocates here in Texas, we all have really strong trust. Like I have such trust in all of these people working at all of these different organizations. And that did not happen overnight. That has been relationships that have been built over many, many years, over many, many campaigns, over many, many squabbles, you know, because we, re- I mean, you really are, it becomes a family um, because we are literally fighting not only for the people that we care about to survive, but to thrive. And so that has, all of this has really been built on mutual trust um, between, you know, not only the leadership at our various organizations, but also down to the organizers, probably more so even down at, at the organizer level. Yeah. I feel like you answered it in that you, you know, went beyond and, and with that, I think the trust thing is so important and hard. It can be really hard because we've, um, especially with the larger it gets, the harder it it can be, right. There can be like lots of like maneuvering and, um, different issues become prioritized versus, you know, you know how that can go. I also would like to social work shout out if I could, right. Because we actually, we have so many social workers, working in the advocacy space here in Texas. And Stephanie Gomez, who is a social worker, is the associate director over at Common Cause Texas, who is a partner of ours. And then Maria Renee Morales is at Jolt Texas, also a social worker working in this coalition space. Um, And Amanda Williams, also a social worker working at the Lilith Fund, uh, an abortion fund here in Texas. So we have a bunch of social workers up in this mix as well. So shout out to all all the advocacy social workers in Texas, we're tired. We're all tired, but we're still going. You know, we're going to be getting towards the end, but there's a couple more things I definitely want to cover. And I know that like, there could be so much more. I mean, even like all the specifics of like the issues you, your organization works on. So one thing is like, you know, how can people connect with what you're doing and learn more? And of course, I'll link anything, you know, in the show notes and on the podcast website. Yeah. So, I mean, I I would say social media, right? Everyone's got to talk about social media. It's so funny. I'm the director of communications, but I have this like loathing for social media, which is like, I hope I don't get fired for saying that. But (laughs) I mean, I would, we're, we're definitely incredibly active on, um, on our Twitter, um, at TX civil rights. That is actually where, you know, where we, do our the the most sort of rapid response and live updates around things happening in the state um, as it relates to issues that we work on. Um, but that's also like the platform where I think it's like easiest to see, you know, action alerts that everyday people can take. Um, and also, you know, updates about sort of very high hovering legal stuff happening in the state, I think that we put into layperson language. Um, and that's really been that's one of the, the unique things about TCRP is that we're able to put all of that legalese because we do work inside of the courtroom and outside of the courtroom. And we're able to put that into layperson language so that, you know, hopefully anybody can can understand it. So certainly, certainly um, Twitter is you're, you're going to find all of our stuff. Um, and then, uh, you know, of course, signing up for our email list. And if you're ever at the Capitol, you can definitely catch us at the Capitol in person. So we basically pay rent there now at this point. Another thing is like, you know, for 
people who do want to like get involved, you know, whether not, I mean, in Texas, they, you know, can go to you, but let's say people outside of Texas and they want to get involved, like what's a, or even, I mean, I guess they need to, you know, look for those organizations that are doing similar work where they are. Right. Yeah. I, and I would say, you know, I, I think that if folks ask a friend, I mean, I think a friend is it hopefully at least going to know somebody who knows somebody who knows of an organization that they trust. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I've definitely found that a lot of folks kind of like will roll into this space sort of by accident because they're like, oh yeah, my cousin's friend gets this organization's emails and I heard about this meeting and I came, um, and I came to this meeting. And also, I mean, social media is handy, right? Like I think perusing even Instagram hashtags, you can probably find a sort of movement space that is, that is, uh, accessible to, to people. Yeah. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. And what would you say to social work students who might be listening, who like want to do this, but feel like their programs are maybe clinically focused and they hadn't really, they went to like the local program, you know, and like for a number of different reasons and they didn't really do all that research or it really wasn't a choice. Cause it was like, they're going to go to the local public college or university and like, it's not really going to focus as much on advocacy. What can, how, what can they do? Yeah. So I get this question a lot as well. I would re up my recommendation that social work students, even if you are in a very clinically focused program, you can still show up at city council meetings. You can still show up at county commissioner courts meetings. Like you can still testify on stuff. The other thing that I've run into quite a bit from clinical students is that they have either heard this rumor, which is not true, um, that it that it is somehow illegal for social work practitioners, certainly, or social work students to ask clients that they work with if they are registered to vote and to provide that information or actively like supply a voter registration application to the, to their client. Um, it is not illegal. That's absolutely not true. There, there's like somehow this, this myth got started that it's, it's like illegal and totally against our code of ethics and we're not allowed to do that. That's absolutely not true. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I, I think it's like within our code of ethics that we are actually morally obligated to try and get our, our clientele registered to vote. And actually, there's a section of the National Voter Registration Act that requires certain agencies that provide um, specific programs, you know, and don't set, write this in stone, everybody, but it's like, you know, things like WIC, like if there's an agency that is that that um, is engaged in WIC programming, um, based on that section of the National Voter Registration Act, you're actually legally required to ask your clients if they would like to register to vote. It's actually the opposite of what a lot of people think. Um, I've also heard from some clinical students that they're that even though they know it's it's permitted to do that, that their their clinical supervisors have said that it's unprofessional, um, which like I know it kind of my <laughs> head just was, exploded like yeah. my head just totally like I just and like, I would I would get calls I would literally get calls from students telling me that like even long after I had graduated because um, they're like Allie what do I do and I was like oh man um, 
And that is, I mean, that's, you know, for those students, I mean, and some of these students were like out of state and I was like, well, I don't, (laughs) I'm not there. I don't know how helpful I can be, but that's like a one-on-one conversation, right? And that's maybe a conversation with a field instructor at your program because um, that is, uh, that's horrible to say that it's unprofessional to ask a client if they would like to register to vote. And, uh, you know, I mean, you can also provide folks with nonpartisan voter education materials. The League of Women Voters is a phenomenal organization for easy to print, easily accessible, nonpartisan voter information and candidate information. Um, So that's one of the ways that I always say that social workers can kind of get into this mix is both through kind of the voter registration process of like asking clients if they would like to register to vote. Um, providing nonpartisan information, showing up to testify at the local and state level, wherever they are. And also um, at the national level, sometimes uh, departments or agencies will open up portals for public, what's public comment. I'm doing quotations with my fingers, public comment on specific policy things that they, that they're looking into or that they want to do. And something that Dr. Suzanne Pritzker, my my social work mentor, always encouraged students to do um, both while social workers, both while they were students and also once they they exited our program and were actual social work practitioners was to submit public comments uh, via those portals at the at the national level, too. Um, So, you know, always really just trying to you know, make our perspectives as social work practitioners heard, which, again, I think is something that is really missing in a lot of these policy conversations. And we bring such unique, not only unique knowledge, right, but unique perspective, because a lot of us are working with some of the most vulnerable populations every single day. Like we are really seeing what people actually need. Um, So those are some some things to start. And no, it is not illegal and it is not unprofessional to ask someone to register to vote if you are in a clinical space. <laughs> yeah, that's so I'm so glad you brought all of that up and the part in particular, that part and also this whole idea with like and I'm not going to get totally into it cuz we've I've actually had a lot of podcast episodes breaking down how professionalism is a tool of the status quo and white supremacy and gets like weaponized against people. And that was like saying that advocacy is like unprofessional. Um, The new code of ethics says, right, that we must. That we must, yeah. Work against, you know, take action against oppression. I'm not quoting it exactly, but the must part is in there and doing something against oppression is in there. And so that's actually now not ethical to tell like for a supervisor to say that is actually unethical. Now it's literally against the rules. <laughs> right. It's a, And then um, I wanted to just mention, you know, I don't know if you've seen this, but something I would use when I would teach about policy advocacy is there's like, I found it online, like a free PDF. And I don't know a lot about this organization. Maybe you do, but the Center for Lobbying and the Public Interest had this make a difference for your cause guide. And it completely broke down like what nonprofits can do and can't do, you know, in terms of advocacy. So I think that's another thing that's Mm -hmm. like really important is like, we need to know like exactly what we can do and what we can't do and not just rely on like word of mouth. Because as you said, 
some, you know, incorrect and actually harmful information can get passed on that way. Um, That's right. Yeah. I've got two more questions for you. So what do you love about what you do? Oh my gosh. Do you know what? You are giving me such a lesson in gratitude right now because just today I was so stressed out with the special session that I was like, oh, forget it. I can't do this anymore. You're giving me a, you're giving me time to pause and have a lesson in gratitude. Um, I mean, I love working with the people that I work with. And I don't just mean at TCRP. I mean all of all of the advocates that I work with across all of these organizations. And that's because you know, I really, I, I get a lot of, I get a lot of spiritual fulfillment from my work, to be honest. And like, I'm kind of a recovering Catholic, but those Catholic roots still run really deep. And like, when I think about my Catholicism, I mean, the roots of Catholicism really are social justice. And so I really get like a lot of spiritual just centering and fulfillment from the work that I do. But it's also like the, there is there are very few things as strong that make me pause with gratitude as much as like being in the state capital for hour 18 with a group of people fighting as hard as me to make other people's lives better. There is just, there's a sense of connection there and of camaraderie there that is just unparalleled. And I love that about this work. I, I love the, the human connection aspect of the work. And, um, Actually, I'll give a quick anecdote because it's just so cute. Like during the regular session, I was so preoccupied with all of my Zooms and all of the strategy meetings and et cetera, et cetera, that my fiddle fig plant died. And I was very upset. I was very, very upset about this plant dying, (laughs) even though it's a very temperamental plant. But I was so sad and upset. And the policy director at the ACLU of Texas drove to my home and dropped off a new fiddle fig for me. (laughs) Right? So it's just like, and that's also what I mean about this like extremely strong trust bond that you develop with coalition partners, right? It's just like drove to my home and dropped off a new fiddle fig because she knew I was so upset about my fiddle fig dying. Um, So that really is, you know, that like on my feelings level, that's my favorite part. On the policy level, though, look, everybody likes to win. I love a good win every now and then. I am a Leo. I am a fire sign. I'm competitive. We love a good policy win every now and then, 100%. That feels very, very good as well. Um, And I also love, from the TCRP side, my other favorite thing is that I get to marry within my work both litigation and advocacy. It's It's super fun for me. That's like three favorite things, but those are my favorite things. <laughs> I love it. And like the story about the plant and that, I mean, I'm cause so it's sad. like, that's like the fuel <laughs> also, like you need that, like you need that fuel, you know, like when you're doing this work to have someone come and do something like that, you know, especially someone who's like that busy too. I mean, I know when I tell you, when I tell you, I cried. I mean, I was already crying over my dead plant and then I just like wept, <laughs> just wept. I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> And then my the the last question I have for you is, you know, and I mean you've definitely discussed this, but like what, you know, what is the biggest challenge of this work for you? Oh, self-care and balance for sure. Oh man. That's a whole that's another episode. And taking I'm care sure of your you've plants. Had it already. <laughs> <laughs> taking, taking care, care of your plants. plants. Yeah. yeah, I mean like 
<laughs> my girlfriend right now has a rule for me that like at 6 p.m. by 6 p.m. if nothing is on fire, I gotta I gotta put it down um, because I'm really bad at not putting it down. <laughs> like I will go all night every night. I'm very um, I have a very high threshold for work and hours um, and. Yeah, really the 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 balance, the balance. And also, you know, I just mentioned one of my favorite things is the human connection and like the 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 incredible trust that and and bonds that I have with so many of our coalition partners, but you know, it's important to get outside of the work sometimes. So like I do my best to do activities and see people who are not necessarily like trying to have brunch and talk about the election code only throughout brunch. Like, you know, I try to, cause that happens to me too a lot, <laughs> but that that's absolutely the biggest challenge is, is the self care and, and balance. Um, because, you know, I think you folks in this work, we feel, we feel God, I mean, especially in Texas, like you feel a certain sense of responsibility, right? You're just like, I got to do it. I got to do it. The, the, the weight of democracy is on our coalition's shoulders, you know? And so definitely I would say the self-care and the, and the balance is absolutely the biggest challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you, I mean, I'm glad you said that, even though I'm not glad you said that at the same time, but (laughs) burnout is real and like you're needed for the long haul, you know? And so our bodies can have a way of um, telling us things if we're not taking care of ourselves, right? So, and they, it can come unexpectedly. So, it's just, it's really important. It's really important. Yeah. And, and I actually, I really did have like a legit burnout in 2010. And so, I've also become much better at being very aware of when my body's check engine light is on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Ali, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, for sharing your experience, for sharing your knowledge, your expertise. I got a lot out of this. I know others are going to, and I, you know, I just really want to thank you for doing the work in the community. Thank you. This was so fun. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place. 